the plots of Shakespeare plays are really solid, that the actual story of what happens really still holds up. Everybody, welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. And I am Jackson Nikolai. Here we are. We're back. We promised we'd be back. And here, lo and behold, we we returned. (laughs) We're excited to be back. We're back after our uh, mid, or I guess it's between season break. We do that twice a year, and we wrapped up season nine in December of 2022, and now it is 2023, and we are here for an exciting moment in No Script, the first episode of season 10. Yeah, we made 10 seasons of talking about theater's best scripts. It's been super great. Super excited to be kicking off this. You know, what, what it, it feels like 10 is a significant number, right? You just hit the double digits or, or, or something like that. Decades are measured in 10 years, etc. We haven't been doing it for a decade, but we have been doing it for 10 seasons. And we're just, just stoked that we get to have these conversations with each other and with all of you out there in podcast lands for all of these seasons. Yes, absolutely. Ten seasons, five years ago, this semester, we began No Script, and we've had weekly conversations about some of the great scripts in theater uh, since then, and that has been an amazing privilege. This season, we'll have some things that are the same. We're doing a themed month. We're doing a special guest episode. We have some things that are different. Most notably, you've just enjoyed our new theme music. Ooh, yep, yep. Excited to to bring that out. We've been uh, uh, glad to to use the music that we have been able to find in credit for the podcast for all of these seasons. And this season, it was just time to kind of write something of our own. So I threw something together. Hope you enjoyed it. It's going to be our, 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 for sure, our tunes for this season. And uh, excited to kind of, kind of uh, have that as an offering for all of you. Yeah, oh, for sure. We've had, like, we've been using the royalty-free music thing for all nine of our previous seasons, and there was a change in there. We went from one royalty-free song to another royalty-free song, but there came a point where we were like, you know, that was probably the last commercial I need to hear on TV with our music in the background, because they also were using royalty-free music. Legitimately, that has happened. So, you know what? It was time for the music to be ours, to come from the podcast, to be for the podcast, to be unique to no script. And so we're so excited by the music Jackson has written. His whole family is musical and talented. And now that is part (laughs) of this story as well. Yeah, it's been a blast. Excited, excited to get to share it with all of you, and excited to uh, kind of launch into. We 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 continuously have like great new scripts that we're talking about, um, and and this this play the the play that we're kicking off the year with is is no exception. The 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 uh, the watermark on my copy of the script is June twenty twenty two. So this is this is yeah, that's uh, the draft uh, we're reading. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's it's certainly fresh, and I'm excited to get to talk about it. 
Yeah, we are continuing the tradition that we try to uphold as best we can. It's not always in our power, but we try as much as we can to begin our seasons with a recent Pulitzer. You'll notice that we've skipped one. We are still trying to get a hold of a script for The Hot Wing King (laughs) by Katori Hall. If you or someone you know has access to a draft of that script, we would love to be able to feature it as the first episode of next season. But this season, we are discussing what is right now the most recent Pulitzer Prize winner, Fat Ham by James Imes. And it is, uh, there's something kind of interesting and special, I think, about doing this script as the first episode of such a monumental season for no script. And then we're in our season 10, this this sort of big milestone moment for the podcast. And Fat Ham is a contemporary adaption of Hamlet, perhaps the most famous play of all time. Yeah, yeah. No, it's 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 one of those plays that like if if you go to try to adapt or recontextualize or, or give a new anachronistic approach to it, it's like okay, so everyone pretty much knows a lot about this one. <laughs> They're gonna be watching all the changes, um, and it's just super exciting to get to read this play, um, to get to kind of see some of its story. I'm not gonna steal the context away from Jacob, but it's got a cool context about how how it came about in the moment of time that it came about, and how it's kind of continued to have performances and stuff. So it's it's an exciting script, both because of the the nature of its uh, homage or conversation with uh, Shakespeare's Hamlet, um, and also because of the way that it has existed in the world ever since its inception. And as a little peek into the way that we think about the podcast and the programming and such like that, we have, of course, talked about doing Hamlet on the podcast. It's like, well, it's the most famous play. We're a theater play podcast. Perhaps we should discuss it. But we always come back around to this feeling of like, is there anything to say about it, really, in terms of our yeah. conversation about it on the podcast? Every everybody's talked about Hamlet across you know centuries now, but the ability to sort of access some of what Hamlet is through a new lens, this incredible twist on it. There, we'll talk about that when we get to the synopsis and in our conversation, the way James Imes has sort of twisted almost the kind of core nature of what Hamlet is into something fresh and relevant and very funny. It, it's nice to be able to do Hamlet in some capacity <laughs> through <Right. laughs> the script Fat Ham. Yes. <laughs> yes, I'm excited to get to jump into the conversation about it. Lot, lots of great things to unpack and explore in it. Um, and before we jump into it, though, uh, we wanted to take a second and, as we always do, thank all of our patrons over on patreon.com slash podcast for being a part of the show. It's still, you know, it's not necessarily New Year-ish now as we are uh, approaching the end uh, or the start of February here, um, but but it's still the, the start of the new season and a practice of gratefulness is a, is a great thing to do in the, in the new season slash new year. And so we wanted to say thank you to all of our patrons. You you make this show possible. We love getting to have these conversations, all these conversations about theater's best scripts, about about new scripts, about old scripts, about the ways that those two things interact as we're going to to talk about today. And uh, you all at patreon.com slash podcast make that possible. If you're enjoying the show, if you have been a longtime listener and are excited that we're back again and are looking for a way to get involved in the show more this year, um, uh, or if you're a 
first time listener and are just liking the energy so far and want to kind of join in the join in the the, the party over at patreon.com slash no script podcast. It's a great way to do it. Number of different tiers of membership, the lowest one being just one dollar, twelve dollars over the course of a year. Um and other other tiers as well with different benefits, but you get things like access to patron only posts, credit in some episodes at the playwright level of patronship, and uh, kind of heads up on some of the scripts that we're doing throughout the season. So if you're looking for a way to help out the show, be a part of the NoScript community in a, in a really impactful way to help the show keep going on. Uh, Patreon.com slash NoScript podcast is a great way to do it. Thank you to all of our patrons, and we will see you over there. Yeah, our 10 seasons could not be 10 seasons without the patrons on Patreon.com slash NoScript podcast. Y'all are awesome. Thanks so much. And now back to the script. Here we go. Uh, Hey, okay, so James Imes, new playwright to the podcast, always fun to do, uh, and great to have for the first episode of a new season as well. Uh, James Imes is a really cool individual who does a lot of stuff that has this sort of unique um, location and function within the theater community. He's out of Philadelphia and being out of Philadelphia, he is sort of got two prongs, uh, many prongs in the Philadelphia community, but two, I just want to highlight here. First of all, he's an associate professor at Villanova university. Um, and it's, it's a little unclear to me whether he's still actively teaching courses there, uh, or because of the success of fat ham and some of the other things he's doing, whether he's just sort of on the faculty and teaches occasionally. We know that that is true of other practicing theater artists. Uh, but he's an associate press professor as part of the faculty at Villanova University. Um, he received his BA in drama, his MFA in acting before becoming a playwright and all the other things that he does. He's an award-winning director as well. Uh, he's the co-founder of the Orbiter 3 Playwright Collective. But one of the things that I think is really special and cool about James Imes is that he is part of this new leadership experiment for a, a model of leading theater companies at the Wilma Theater. The Wilma Theater is one of the nation's uh, most renowned, most uh, highly noted regional professional theaters. Um, they did a lot of stuff during the pandemic in filming live productions that were really high quality and, and tried not to sacrifice the sort of nature of what the stage itself is, didn't try to turn them into films. Um, a lot of people were trying to do that. The Wilma Theater did it very successfully. I think we are later in the season slated to talk about another play that they did in a similar format. But Fat Ham premiered in that way. But what I really want to say about it is that James Imes is part of a trio of people who are all the co-artistic directors of the Wilma Theater in this new leadership model. So he and the other three co-artistic directors basically alternate years where they are the lead artistic director and then um, the other, you know, it sort of comes around in a cycle like that. So it's a very exciting new model for theater leadership. There's this, um, there's been this long time sort of pairing of uh, ten, being like a tenured theater professor with being like a tenured artistic director. There's sort of this like, when you're an artistic director, you're in that role until you retire. But at the same time, we're rethinking 
the way that theater leadership works or arts leadership in general works. And so to try this new model uh, at one of not just like some back alley theater, but the Wilma Theater, again, one of the nation's most renowned regional professional houses is I, I, I think it's impressive. I think it's fascinating. I think it's an incredibly exciting new way of looking at leadership in the arts. So I just wanted to give a shout out for that, which is nothing really to do with his playwriting. Um, his most notable play before Fat Ham, which is the one that really blows up, of course, is a play called The Most Spectacularly Lamentable Trial of Ms. Martha Washington, um, which premiered in 2013 at a playwriting uh, development sort of conference called Playpen in Philadelphia. That one had some really nice regional life. It played at Steppenwolf. Um, but then, of course, Fat Ham has reached this whole other level, which we'll talk about in a second. Imes has won many, many awards, including for acting and directing, which I'm not going to highlight right now. Um, he's won the F. Otto Haas Award for Emerging Artist, which was in 2011. That's a Philadelphia local award for an emerging artist in that scene. He really, really sort of belongs as part of that community and really speaks to it and works in it. He won a 2015 Pew Fellowship for Playwriting. He was the 2015 winner of the Terrence McNally New Play Award for his play White. He was the 2017 recipient of the Whitting Award. And then he is the 2020 and 2022. He's one of the prize winners of the Steinberg Prize, which is a sort of collective of playwrights each year that is awarded this basically it's a, a grant or a fellowship for early to mid-career playwrights and then of course he won the pulitzer prize for drama that <laughs> sort of uh no name award that no one's ever heard of <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> uh james <laughs> Ives has had plays produced by flashpoint theater company theater horizon the national black theater the public theater the hudson valley shakespeare theater steppenwolf timeline theater which is a great little theater in chicago um he's done a bunch of the new play development programs that you may have heard of out there like clubbed thumb like the lark like playwrights horizons um done all that really incredible stuff uh th that he's been able to work on i've been able to check out and grab a couple of his other scripts just as a matter of interest um fat ham as his uh, kind of pinnacle work right now, that Pulitzer Prize winning uh, play that is about to go on Broadway, hint, hint, for what's about to come, premiered in 2021, right? So this is during the pandemic at the Wilma Theater in a kind of special filmed production event. James Imes talks about basically putting up the cast and crew in a bubble in Philadelphia, and then they would work on filming the scenes. Um, it's a really cool piece. It's it's filmed in a really cool style where they still try to nod to the theatricality of what James Imes is doing. And on the strength of that production, he goes on to be nominated for the Pulitzer Prize. Um, and then as a result of that, uh, May of 2022, so just last year in the spring, the play premiered off-Broadway at the Public Theater in New York, and now that production is transferring to Broadway as we speak. It's going to open at the American Airlines Theater here in just a few short months. So if you are a Broadway person, you have the chance to check that production out. My understanding is that it's going to be a fairly limited run uh, just through the end of the summer. So if you are somebody who wants to go see Broadway shows, you have a chance to see Fat Ham on Broadway here in the spring and summer of 2020. 23 if you're listening to this episode 
as it comes out. And that is kind of the the most recent updates because this play is quite new. Um, it's a Pulitzer Prize winner that's getting its Broadway time in the spotlight. But also, as we've been tracking these plays that you know had life either taken from them by the pandemic because they were coming into their own and then the pandemic happened or that somehow came out of the pandemic. This is a play whose first production, the production on the strength of which it goes on to win all these awards that came out as a filmed production during the pandemic, kind of a a next step in the development and life cycle we've been tracking of how the pandemic changed playwriting and, and getting your plays premiered. Yeah, the continued kind of scrappiness of, of theater folks in the middle of a pandemic to continue doing the work and now it's getting its moment to kind of return to the stage. It's just an exciting, exciting project to get to kind of watch and and uh, and get to talk about. Um, uh, as we jump into the conversation here, I'm going to quick synopsize the script as best I can um, so that we're starting on, on a similar playing field as we engage in the conversation if you haven't had the chance to read or see the play yet. Um, we were we were chatting beforehand on this, and this is a fun one to try to synopsize. So I think what I'm going to do is broad, <laughs> broad strokes and probably some spoilery strokes, because I think there's an interesting world. We've already kind of spoiled the fact that this is very much in conversation with Hamlet, which is in the title, kind of like it's there for you to find pretty easily. But there is a world where you could walk into the theater and get maybe... I don't know, possibly a third of the way through the play. If you weren't paying attention to Hamlet when you read it in high school, possibly a third <laughs> through the play, <laughs> you might you might go, oh, oh, it's probably something to do with Hamlet. Um, but but <laughs> but um, uh, the the uh, the whole kind of cast list right away at the top of the of, of the play kind of gives away gives away the game. Um, you have uh, just a, uh, a bunch of characters who I'm, I'm just paging through to get all of them on the same area here. Um, you have Juicy, who um, is standing in for the Hamlet-esque character. I'll, uh, I'll just read the character description for Juicy. Yeah, Juicy is thick with two C's. 20 to 21, black, he's beautiful, he is lonely, he is smart, a kind of Hamlet. You have his mother, Tedra, who is kind of uh, uh, a Gertrude. You have Rev, who is Tedra's current husband, very much like Claudius. You have Opal, who is one of Juicy's only friends. Um, uh, she's 19 to 20, uh, and, and uh, a kind of Ophelia. You have Larry, uh, a boy that is attracted to Juicy. Um, and he uh, is uh, a 21 to 23, uh, a black, a Marine, trying to heal from PTSD. He has a secret. He's awkward. He's kind of a Larrities. You have Rabbi, who is Larry and Opal's mother, which is interesting because... Uh, uh, she stands as a, in, as, as a, in as a kind of Polonius. Um, uh, and then you have Pap, who is the ghost of Juicy's father, and Tio, who uh, is uh, Juicy's cousin. He's his oldest friend, and he's kind of a Horatio. So uh, right away from the character descriptions, we're getting we're getting uh, the the conversation with Shakespeare's Hamlet. Um, as far as the setting of this play goes, it's a house in North Carolina. Could also be Virginia or Maryland or Tennessee. Um, uh, it's it, it is not Mississippi or Alabama or Florida. That's a different thing altogether. Is what the setting of of the place <laughs> says here. 
Um, the time is the American South sometime um, in, uh, at least when he was, I'll, I'll just read it because he phrases it quite well. The, the, the American South, to me, in, exists in a kind of liminal space between the past and the present with an aspirational relationship to the future that is contingent to your history living in the South. All that to say, I'm writing this play from inside the second decade of the 21st century. This world aesthetically sits anywhere in the four to six decades preceding the current moment. So, contemporary Thank you. America. Thank <laughs> you, James Imes, for doing what I just cannot understand why other playwrights don't do. It's like, they say the present, but it's like the present when you wrote it, man. Come on. And James Imes is just like, I'm writing it like in this year, hereabouts. It's set in these years, hereabouts. (laughs) Thank you. I was so delighted to read that. Everybody who wants to put the present should just put that instead. (laughs) As I was reading it, I was like, oh, Jacob's going to love this one. (laughs) It's It's perfect. It's exactly what they want to achieve. They want to say the present to right now. Yep. <laughs> so, so yeah, some some time in the present to right now. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, and uh, yeah, so so that's the setting for the play. And then uh, a lot of like Hamlet esque things happen. We're gonna get into the conversation and talk about how it riffs <laughs> on it super well. Um, but I'm just gonna kind of hit the beats of of the play as we go. So Tio, the cousin, the Horatio s character, and uh, Juicy are outside. They're setting up this reception for the wedding of Tedra and Rev. Um, uh, it's a barbecue reception at their house, and they're kind of setting up this kind of hodgepodge of different decorations and sorts of things. They're having conversation back and forth. Their 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 relationship is very close. Um, they they they're kind of discussing whatever Tio is watching on his phone, which is some sort of OnlyFans account. Um, that that he's going. So right away, you're kind of like set into the modern moment. You know, we're using apps. We know we're using phones and all that business. Um, however, pretty quickly, T.O. sees the ghost of Pap, um, who is Juicy's father, um, and he's kind of walking through the scene. Uh, T.O. notices him, and when uh, 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 Juicy, who has stepped inside for just a second, comes back in, T.O.'s like, I saw your dad. What's going on? Um, and they have, you have some banter between the two of them. Eventually, Tio steps away. Juicy then sees Pap, who uh, emerges. He says that uh, uh, they, they have a, a pretty contentious relationship um, around, especially uh, Pap's judgment of Juicy, who is uh, definitely gender nonconforming. Um, uh, later on in the play, he'll kind of reveal that he's, he's he he has. He's not really interested in either men or women, and he's kind of like floating between, and he gets a lot of flack from that from his family throughout this play. Um, and Pap starts that off, uh, kind of critiquing his weight, kind of critiquing how he presents himself and all that business, but then eventually demanding that he avenge him, um, uh, avenge his death. Uh, he, he died because uh, he, he went to prison for killing a man because his breath smelled bad. Um, and so he, he killed him, went to prison, and then he was uh, then following uh, killed in prison. Uh, Ghost of Pap claims that that is a result of Rev, who has orchestrated this crime, and that now his his son, Juicy, has to avenge him. And uh, there's no, no ifs, ands, or buts. You must go out and, and kill Rev as a result of this. 
So, uh, Juicy, understandably, has some uh, resistance to that and kind of wonders whether or not he can do this sort of thing and uh, contemplates that. But eventually, the wedding reception and barbecue continues to be set up. Rev enters the scene. He's this kind of gregarious uh, pit cook. Um, and uh, he comes in, and he has a lot of critique of Juicy as well, um, even as Tedra is in the scene. And, and uh, they're kind of moving around. There's, there's quite a bit. Of, uh, of of critique of Juicy and how he shows up in the world. Their contention is, is pretty clearly uh, uh, shown. Eventually, Juicy steps away. Tedra and Rev have a quick conversation about the fact that they've used... Uh, pretty much all of his college fund. Uh, Juicy is going to the University of Phoenix to become uh, an HR person, basically. He wants to just get a job working with people and uh, and uh, kind of finish his college degree from the University of Phoenix and, and move into that role. However, uh, they, uh, both Tedra and Rev, have used his college fund to both pay for the wedding reception and to remodel the bathroom in uh, in a very different way um, that that uh, became very expensive. And so they had to use almost pretty much all of his college fund to do that. So they reveal that bit of information as Juicy is off. Eventually, uh, Juicy comes back on stage. Tedra breaks the news to him about that. Um, and uh, he and Rev have their confrontation th scene. Think the Hamlet and Claudia scene where Claudius basically says, buck up, buddy. Um, that's kind of what happens with the Rev and Juicy confrontation. Um, it ends in a sort of faux boxing match that Rev drags Juicy into and ends up punching him uh, enough to knock him down. Um, and uh, and they, they kind of uh, part ways with that at about the time that the rest of the crew that's coming shows up. Um, Rabbi, Larry, and Opal all show up. Rabbi again is the kind of stand in for um, Polonius, Larry for Larities, and Opal for Ophelia. And, and then you have a couple more scenes. So the, the, the kind of party gets started and, and then one by one, uh, a couple more scenes occur between Juicy and various other characters. It starts with Juicy and Opal, who have this conversation between the two of them. Opal is kind of bucking some of the gender stereotypes that she is being forced into um, by her, her mother, Rabby. She uh, resists the outfit that she's been dressed in for the day and uh, eventually says, uh, hey, I, I think you're kind of, I think you're kind of have feelings for me, Juicy, and... Uh, Probably, I, I just need to let you know, I don't have feelings for you. Not only that, I'm not even attracted to men, I'm attracted to women. And Juicy says, uh, don't worry, I don't have any feelings for you. I'm not really attracted to either right now. And, it's, and so, so, so don't worry about that. They kind of get on the same page with that. The uh, uh, next scene is is the meal. Everyone comes out with all the food, and then there's this karaoke scene where everyone is trying to be this big party together, followed by a game scene um, where uh, charades is played. This is the catch the conscience of the king moment, um, uh, and... Uh, 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 Juicy uh, puts a specific prompt into the bowl that he then acts out, which is, uh, I think the preacher killed the cook or something like that is the, is the, the phrase or the book that is, um, that is uh, acted out in charades, which uh, he sees uh, Rev kind of react uh, alarmedly to that storm off into the house. He gets his confirmation that in fact, uh, Rev probably did kill his father which is followed by a scene between Larry and Juicy, where Larry, who uh, throughout the scenes has been kind of um, 
uh, uh, certainly attracted to Juicy uh, from across the scenes. At least the stage directions imply that he is paying close attention to Juicy, often kind of uh, orbiting around him. And they have a scene where Larry admits to some substantial feelings for Juicy. Um, and they, they kind of walk through that. Juicy um, uh, kind of asks him why he's been holding this as a secret for such a long time. And uh, uh, Larry admits some of the, the, the pressures that he's under. He's in the military. He has uh, the, the pressures of, of his, his mother Rabbi's expectations on him. And so he doesn't want to admit to uh, his, both his feelings and, uh, and his orientation or his, his gender identity um, uh, to his family. So on we go. Uh, then there's another scene where Tedra comes out of the house. She's been uh, talking with uh, Rev. Uh, and uh, Re and uh, she comes out and confronts Juicy. Juicy sees the ghost of Pap again. This is sounding similar to those of you who, who know Hamlet. Juicy uh, uh, says that uh, surely Rev has killed father uh, uh, or Pap, and uh, you need to, need to uh, confront him about that. Tedra goes back inside, and then all the young ones come out in a great riff scene, which I'm excited to talk about. All the kind of younger... Kids all come outside, and not kids. They're all they're all you know late teens or twenties, um, and they're they're all outside and all talking to each other about kind of how they would redo uh, what what's going on with them. So they uh, they kind of uh, they they reset that a little bit and kind of talk about what they would imagine their world would be like if they like moved out of the house, etc. If they had a little bit more power in their world. Then Rev storms out of the house. Rev has been confronted by Tedra to some degree, or at least Tedra has told him that Juicy accused him of, of uh, the, the deed. And uh, off, and he goes off on, on Juicy. They have this confrontation. Um, he, he somewhat pseudo-admits that, yes, he in fact did it, but even if he did do it, uh, there's no way for you to prove it. It doesn't really matter. I'm here now. You're not getting rid of me, blah, 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 blah. He goes over and he eats some of the, the meat that he made and proceeds to start choking on it. Uh, everyone is trying to save him. Pretty much the only one uh, who uh, seems to know the Heimlich maneuver is Juicy. Um, and uh, he tries to go over and save him, but Rev resists being saved by him um, because of the... Um, be, because of, uh, he's, he's, he's homophobic <laughs> is, is basically what it is. He, he gestures away. He doesn't want him to help because he, he says, or he gestures through the stage directions and through his gestures. I don't want his help because he's gay. Um, uh, he, so he dies. Um, he dies, uh, having choked on the kind of gristle of the rib that he was eating. There is also a fight between, uh, and I'm a little hazy at the moment uh, on whether this was right before or right after this, but there was a fight between Juicy and Larry um, because uh, Rabbi comes out and accuses Juicy again of, of, of kind of being gender nonconforming and, and not, really, not really conforming to uh, gender stereotypes. Um, and, and so he ends up actually kind of revealing Larry's conversation with him without Larry's permission. Larry and him get into a fight and there's this whole scene where, where Larry ends up kind of being forced to come out at the hands of Juicy um, and, and, and their confrontation there. Notably though, in a, in a difference from the, uh, the, the uh, source document, the, the, the Shakespearean Hamlet, they don't kill each other. Um, the only person who is who dies is, um, or yeah, the only, pretty much kind of the only person who dies is Rev, who drops having choked on on the rib. Um, then there's this this fourth wall breaking scene uh, where they're all kind of there. We have Rev dead on the floor, 
and you have the kind of self-aware juicy of both his relationship with the fourth wall break, looking out to the audience and saying, I think we're, we're supposed to all kill each other now. This is what happens at the end of a Shakespearean play. Um, we're supposed to all kill each other, and they all don't. They all just decide to do something else. Um, they kind of uh, switch to uh, what if we just kind of were together with each other and lived with each other a little bit. Everyone kind of gather around, let's play, let's eat. Um, I think, <laughs> if I'm remembering correctly, there is a, a stage direction where eventually Rev jumps up and uh, kind of joins in the eating of the food. Um, and, and by the end of the play, this kind of unscripted stage direction is that the party continues um, all the way to the end of the play. Um, a, a notable riff on the on the on the Hamlet uh, of 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 uh, your. There's so, no flights uh, <laughs> of angels sing thee to thy rest, Hamlet. Yeah, there's <laughs> no late arrival of Fortinbras or something like that. It's just <laughs> it's it's straight through into this this party that kind of goes on for as long as you think you can make the scene last. I think basically the the final the final sort of stage direction is a beautifully evocative line. Uh, the lights burn on until we are all gone like stars. So the, the scene continues is a good way to sum that up until, until it's done. Yeah, so, I mean, clearly, right, and, and this is no secret to, to anybody that this play follows the kind of loosest connections to the, to the Hamlet story until there's this major shift at the end, right? James Imes has taken this tragedy that ends with violence and death and made it into something else, I mean, something like a more traditional comedy where it ends in a party instead of a murder, right? Um, but I, I'm actually more interested in starting at the beginning because I, I do think uh, when you started your synopsis, Jackson, you were talking about if you didn't know this was Hamlet. And I wonder about how a theater would would advertise the show. I mean, right now, yeah. the, the off-Broadway run and the Broadway run are certainly leaning into everybody knowing on the front end that this is a, a Hamlet adaption. If that were so, if you came in and you knew the play was an adaption of Hamlet, I am fascinated by how James Imes has started the play. The first line of the play is, are you watching porn? <laughs> yep. <laughs> After you, you hear these noises from his phone. So they're pretty big shift, right? But then we all know, or a lot of people know, that Hamlet is, you know, the, the beginning scenes are this ghost encounter. And so the ghost in this play comes on stage and he's wearing a white ghost sheet like one of the, like a <laughs> yeah. bed sheet with the eyes cut out. I mean he I think James Imes is riffing at the beginning of the play on our expectations of Hamlet. Both our expectations of like the tone of a serious Shakespeare piece and we start with this line are you watching porn and then our understanding of the tone of the play about a ghost who seeks revenge, right? And he comes out in a white bed sheet with the eyes cut out. I mean, that right. tells you something about the play you're about to watch. Yeah, yeah, and it's followed up like consistently, which is why I think that there's there's a, a scant possibility of a world where you could get a little ways into it without really knowing because the language used is very irreverent. Like it's it's very and and like familial irreverence the wrong word. It's familial. It's comfortable with each other. You have this this sort of um uh the eventually once uh, Juicy sees the ghost of Pap. Um, Pap basically says, I wore the sheet because I thought it was going to be scarier if I did. Um, 
<laughs> and and so you have this sort of like very self-aware, very comfortable dialogue, um, which you're you're not necessarily expecting when you go to Hamlet, which is often couched in in somewhat archaic, old dialogue. Yeah, or or the dialogue certainly is a is a different kind of form of English. But I also think more than riffing on the actuality of the play, which in interviews I think you can see that James Imes respects quite a bit, he's riffing on what we expect to encounter. Because there is this sort of old English dialogue, it's of course gorgeous writing, but we I think there's this sort of general expectation of handling it very seriously and and the the beauty of the poetry and all this. And we right. get a totally different kind of writing. Not that it's not beautiful or poetic, it absolutely is. But it does not feel like Shakespearean verse until it actually is Shakespearean verse later in the play. Right. Yeah. Every once in a while, it, it, there's there's these great monologues that come through, um, either in Shakespearean verse. Also, though, like the the sort of homage monologues that break through as well, um, that aren't in Shakespearean verse. There, Tio has a great one that I forgot to mention specifically in the synopsis. But when all the young people are out there, kind of dreaming of a different world, he basically describes like a, a trip, um, that that he went on yes. when he was playing a VR game. <laughs> Um, but, but, but it's like, it's, it's still a well-worded trip. Um, and, and, uh, the, the way that, 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 uh, there's multiple times when people have these not quite soliloquies, I guess, but monologues, sometimes they're soliloquies. Well, I, I do think there's soliloquies. Yeah. The, the play, it, it kind of riffs on the way that Hamlet and a lot of the Shakespearean tragedies really as a whole function in these characters turning and sort of professing the innerness of their heart to the audience. And some of what that does is sets up the audience to understand the character's motivations. Sometimes it advances the plot. Sometimes it's just incredibly gorgeous sort of psychological writing. And this play plays on that with the, several times throughout the show. It's especially juicy does it because of course the Hamlet soliloquy are the famous ones are from Hamlet mostly. Uh, Juicy will turn to the audience and like the sort of background character or the, the other characters in the scene rather will become sort of background. They'll sort of fade out volume wise and you, they still have some sort of action behind them, but it will be quiet. Like the, one of the very first times this happens is a quote from the script, uh, pap and juice. So pap, the ghost and juicy are in a conversation about what he wants to do. And juicy turns to the audience and the subtext, the, uh, the, the stage directions rather are, Pap is sort of muted, but continues to rail, furious. His fury waxes and wanes over and over behind the following. Uh, and then a little later, it says it should have moments that feel legit legitimately sublime and beautiful and moments that feel utterly rabid while Juicy focuses on us. Yeah, yeah. So you have this kind of like passive or not passive scene this scene happening behind almost like under underscoring what's going on in front so sometimes it's that uh and 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 other times though the characters notice juicy talking to the audience and no, I, do think their own. I think almost across the board they do i'm trying to think i can't quite come up with every example in the play that this happens yeah but it's almost every time at least that the characters notice yeah, and sometimes, like, I, I'm thinking of a scene, I forget exactly where it is, but it's between Juicy and Tedra, where Tedra comes out and notices that he's talking to the audience and kind of, like, demands that he present her well um, and not as this sort of, uh, sort of, 
person who just decided to go off and get married again really quickly, but that there were a lot of things going on and that, that she was trying to kind of handle, <laughs> handle a lot of things in that moment. So you have, you have, you know, Hamlet is, is, is a famously, uh, is a famous, uh, the play is famous for the fact that Hamlet has this relationship with the audience. Um, and so it's kind of cool to see other characters get that moment of relationship with the audience in the, in this kind of reimagining of it. Yeah, Tedra has this great in the where she's trying to tell Juicy how she wants to be presented. Basically, she's like, everybody, you know, all, they all think I'm trash or something. You know, it happens in the Bible all the time. All the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's an interesting feature of the script, too, that Juicy is aware of Hamlet the play. He quotes the play, and when characters ask him about what he's quoting, he says he's quoting Shakespeare. Um, it, it's not like just a, uh, it, it's not just a straight up adaption, I guess I'll say. Beyond the way in which the plot shifts at the end, the play knows it's an adaption and thus is a contemporization of Shakespeare and the character of Juicy plays in it. He seems to be kind of the only one that understands that he is a Hamlet, that he is he's doing Hamlet things. Uh, but it it's part of I don't know. Is it is it about the like the sort of in joke with the audience or why would you write this Hamlet with the knowledge of the other Hamlet? Yeah, I mean, certainly, certain, certain, some of it is is kind of the the kind of cultural awareness that the audience audience would have, the inferrals that you can make as a result of being steeped in Hamlet uh, for you know centuries. Um, <laughs> uh, so, so, so some of that is kind of building upon it. I think it's also though. I, I saw one interview with Imes that he talked about. This is like his conversation with Shakespeare, like how he would imagine sitting down and being able to talk to the guy um, is by kind of setting his story, his specific story, because uh, he he is he in, in many of his interviews, he's like, I grew up in a house very much like this in North Carolina. This in some ways is me kind of bringing my family to the Shakespearean table um, and telling my story in the world that Shakespeare created all that all those years ago. So you you have this sort of like conversation aspect going on as well, where where a contemporary play, playwright is bringing his own story um, and his own experience to something that has become kind of uh, this this um, not quite archetype, but this this almost like this this common experience for theater folk, people who are accustomed to going to theater, um, and and giving it a little bit of a change, giving it a change of a lot of um, uh, gender identity awareness and 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 the ability for people to to uh, find something in this play to kind of have the courage to express themselves fully because there's a lot of that in this play between either Juicy or Larry or Opal. Um, so, you, so you have him bringing this whole other conversation to the table that Shakespeare maybe didn't necessarily write into it, but that the world of Hamlet is able to morph to uh, to represent well. Mm -hmm. And there's some incredible ways in which the play crosses over. Uh, I, I was having a conversation with someone in my life. I think I know who it is, but I can't promise that I'm right, so I'm not going to say a name. If you're listening and this was you, I apologize for not mentioning that you were the one who said this, but I just want to make sure I'm right. Um, this person was talking about 
uh, about Shakespeare and talked about how, in some ways, it really is the language that is the barrier right now, that the plots of Shakespeare plays are really solid, that the actual story of what happens really still holds up but there is a language barrier. And I think in some ways you see that in Fat Ham. He's sort of taken some of the really sharp story moments and used them and and sort of showed us how effective they really are. I'm thinking of the charade scene in just how good that scene still is. It still holds up. Yeah. He sets up that they're about to play charades and then he has Juicy step forward and Juicy gives us the plays the thing monologue. I mean, just straight out of the book, as far as I can tell, I didn't compare it line for line, but it seems to be just straight from Hamlet, the plays the thing monologue, right? I've heard that guilty creatures sitting at a play have by the very cunning of the scene been so to been struck so to the soul that presently they have proclaimed their malfactations. The play's the thing wherein I'll catch the conscience of the king. And then he makes a little joke. Actually, it's the cook. I mean the cook. Uh, And so we know (laughs) on the front end what he's going to set out to do, just like we do in Hamlet. We know on the front end that this fake play that the players put on in Hamlet is designed to prompt the, the guilty party to react guiltily. And we get that in this play too. It's in charades rather than a false play. But it's a amazing how effective that storytelling that plot moment really is yeah yeah it it, it still definitely still functions definitely still like ge- like generates a uh, a mostly innocent uh way for uh juicy or hamlet to to uh kind of uh, accuse uh rev uh, of of having of having killed the father without necessarily um pointing the finger back at himself as as to the person who who uh, accused him of it it's it's a fa- it's a great plot device and also the 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 way that it's um kind of presented as like a family game night um uh or a game moment um is is uh Again, recontextualizing it into something else, because if you think about like that moment in in the play, you have to go through or in in Shakespeare in Shakespeare's play, you have to go through so many steps to get there. Right. Like players have to come to the theater and Hamlet has to talk to the players and he has to like script the whole thing. There's that whole scene where he's talking about how to act well um, versus. But, but in- it, it is like it, it's supposed to be. I mean, this is one of those things where the culture kind of gets in the way because them going to that them having this play in the original. Hamlet is not the same as us going to see a play today where exactly. it's like sort of a special night out. It's they're, they're the royal family. They have players come through to do an evening entertainment for them all the time. It's much more like us watching a TV show at night. I mean, it's or just playing it's a game. the evening's entertainment <laughs> or playing a game, right? So changing it to the game, it does fit our understanding of what the moment is supposed to be. It's not a big special event. It's an evening's entertainment for this family. Yeah, exactly. So, so that that sort of like re reframe into something that that would just kind of passively be engaged with as something that we do together, and then surprise, it's it's the gotcha moment. Is is yeah, it's just brilliant. It's really good. And also the other piece that I like, uh, the the kind of <clears throat> re 
reframe um, that I enjoyed was how uh, sandwiched everything is into like the the sort of visceral. Everything is happening. There's no scene breaks. Um, there's, there's it's all sort of uh, happening at once, all in one moment too, like all at one party, um, all in one attention span. <laughs> also for for kind of our our shorter attention span audiences, um, it's 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 all happening so so presently and viscerally uh, that, that sort of reframe of sandwiching a couple of those scenes together and, and bringing the action to a compelling beat was also really exciting to get to kind of read and be a part of. Yeah. It's an interesting balance. I'm actually amazed how effectively he manages to achieve sort of two things. One of them is what you're describing that, you know, in Hamlet, the span of time over which that play takes place is a long time. Yeah. And and Hamlet spends a lot of that play sort of waxing poetic about the philosophy of his situation and pondering the reality of what's going on. He's sort of the, you know, he's the philosopher prince, right? He just spends a lot of time thinking and, and pondering what to do. And that occupies right. a lot of time in Hamlet. And so in this play, he James Imes manages to both shrink the amount of time to be like, I mean, literally just like two hours of time. I don't think we skip any time in this play. I think it's pretty much yeah. straight up the two hours that you see. So he takes all of that time between Hamlet hearing, seeing the ghost and choosing his action, shrinks it down to two hours, but still keeps around this feature of who Hamlet is. Juicy is this sort of ponderer, this sort of poet at heart who just has all of these questions and, and needs to think things through and break them down and explore them and all the other characters in in fat ham definitely say that about him yeah and you see that in the way that he interacts with other people uh, all the time too uh, you know with the maybe maybe with the exception of rev but even with rev he kind of has adopts this posture of like kind of continually questioning and and willing to even say things that he probably knows will get him in some sort of trouble but he'll still stick to them um, and and kind of present himself well in that way and also uh, suffer the consequences of sticking to representing himself well. Um, so so you kind of, yeah, I agree. You still get the the sort of uh, ponderer, curious person, person who's willing to engage with each other and, or, or with other people, and you get the interesting riff of, I think that the Opal and Juicy relationship is is a, a compelling riff on the Ophelia and Hamlet one because uh, Hamlet is you know pretty pretty brutal to Ophelia throughout the play, um, and it seems yeah. like that <laughs> um, Opal and Juicy's interaction is very very different from that. You kind of get more of a brutal relationship between Larry and Juicy than you do between Juicy and Opal. Right, which I think makes sense. The brutality of what Hamlet does to Ophelia in Hamlet is echoed in the brutality of what Juicy does to Larry, who's the right. lady standing. And Juicy is gay. So, of course, there's this sort of switch in the characters of the play where he's not attracted to Ophelia or the woman character or, a you know, one of the women character in the show. He's attracted to the male character. And so you switch some of the action of those characters around and you end up with... Uh, Juicy treating Larry in much the same brutal way that Hamlet treats Ophelia. In this case, he outs him to his mother, which is uh, really a painful scene and, and qu causes quite a bit of harm for Larry in the moment. And you, so you still get that kind of um, 
questioning that not, you know, Hamlet's not this sort of perfect hero in the play. Of course, it's Shakespeare. He didn't write perfect heroes. And so you get a hero who does something across the course of the play that you really are taken aback by the brutality of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The and and then there's still the offense to the to the uh, Larity's family. It's just centered on on Larry instead of on Opal. Um, and interestingly, Opal doesn't necessarily step into the the kind of uh, Opal serves as this great kind of egger on from the sidelines. No matter what chaos yeah. is going on, <laughs> Opal is like, "All right, I'm here for this. Let's go." There's a great scene where they decide they're trying to decide whether or not to actually kill everyone at the end of the play, and and Juicy's like, "Okay, everyone, get something to kill each other with," and everyone grabs like you know plastic fork, handbag, um, uh, you know, a, a piece of meat from like a rib from the plate and but opal is like ready to go so something's about, something about her posture is like okay i'm, I'm gonna i'm just backing you up i will you said actually we need to kill. kill everybody here <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. there's ready, a great early go. in the play when when juicy and opal like meet for the first time and juicy's like i you know i think i think i'm gonna kill someone I think I might kill someone. I'm not sure what to do. Opal's response without any context, without any hesitation is just like, do it. You should do it. You should kill do him. it. <laughs> I don't know who you're talking about, but kill him. Yeah. <laughs> but let's, but to see the flip side of that, let's maybe in our final moments here, talk about one of the kind of core shifts from the Hamlet play that fat ham has beyond all the sort of cultural relevancy of changing it to a black family in the South and all that. One of the major changes is the way the play ends this is not the painful tragedy that hamlet is there's no duel with a poisoned sword at the end there's no ophelia wandering off to madness there is this great party and larry comes back you know dressed in the fullest expression of their sort of inner person and and they have this joyous celebration yeah, yeah, and 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 yeah, the 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 meal is shared between them all, and 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 yeah, there's the the, the joyous celebration kind of going on and on and on, um, and and the the sort of the 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 joy of that and the acceptance of that, the hospitality of that. Very different from <laughs> from uh, uh, ye old Hamlet, where like at least five people are dead, um, and and everyone is kind of remarking on 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 the death and the tragedy of it, um, and and yeah, it's it's a, a sub, uh, it's a substantial riff on that, um, and and I think that's part of the sort of. Uh, the the not critique but again the conversation i think uh of of imes as as he's talking with shakespeare about this play is what if we didn't spend as much time in this kind of angst um uh, space what if we instead spent a little bit more time both in our both in our art and in our family situations just you know, sharing meals together, sharing each other's stories, allowing people to show up in their full expression of themselves. And what what would that world look like if that occupied our our kind of uh, entertainment sphere and our family sphere? And also, I think more specifically, what if violence was not 
the justifiable response to violence. Like what yeah. if the core goodness of this world was not achieved by somebody doing violence to someone else because that person did violence to someone else because that person did violence to someone else because that like, what if this cycle uh, James Imes in a, in an interview t- says at its core, this play is about how ha- this Hamlet character whose name is juicy is meeting and undermining his family's cycles of trauma and violence hmm yeah and that definitely that is certainly derailed every at, at kind of most stages of it like even even the way rev ends up dying is not at the hands of juicy juicy has been wrestling that with that ever since pap showed up in the first scene telling him to to go and kill rev um he's 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 you know wrestling with any and it's you know you're wondering whether he'll do it or not but he doesn't it's rev who ends up you know eating eating in his fact own. he tries to save him yeah, yeah, he goes to try to save him. He, he's subverting that narrative consistently through the play. And there's a great early in the play, not early, but earlier in the play, in the conversation between Larry and, and Juicy, where Larry comes out and they have this almost romantic, intimate moment. Larry says something to the, you know, Juicy's talking about how he might have to kill somebody. And Larry says something to the effect of, I, I actually think you're the type of person that might save someone. That's really the kind of yeah. human you are. I kind of wish I was more like you. And you see that little foreshadowing echoed at the end of the play. Rather than, you know, cutting Claudius with a, a sword and then forcing him to drink this poison, uh, Juicy legitimately tries to save Rev as he's choking to death. And it's Rev's, you know, he chokes to death on his own barbecue and his own homophobia. You know, yeah. and, and that's <laughs> yep. the sort of justifiable world. There's still this moment of death. It's not a moment of intentional violence. And then the whole thing shifts from that point forward. Uh, very early in the play, Tio, who's the Horatio stand-in, he and Juicy are talking, and this is what Tio says. These cycles of violence are deep, ingrained, hell-engineered, hard to come out of. Like your pop went to jail, his pop went to jail, his pop went to jail, his pop went to jail, and what's before that, huh? Slavery. It's inherited trauma. You're carrying around your whole family's trauma, man. And that's okay. You okay, but you don't got to let it define you. Yeah, that that certainly pays off. It's it slipped in early. It slipped in early, yeah, earlier. Um, and and uh, has has that kind of like you're still trying to figure out the play sort of <laughs> moment of that script. But it definitely that is then paid off throughout the entirety of it, all the way to the end. Beautiful end of the play. Beautiful play. So many great things that we could like zero in on. Talk about different sorts of character tropes that are that are brought in. Great ways that 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 it all interacts with the kind of the the world building, if you will, of Shakespeare's Hamlet. Um, alas, we are down to the end of our time for this podcast. But the good news is we don't have to stop talking about this play. We'd love to keep chatting with about it with all of you out there in podcast land. You can find us on all the sites. We're at, well, some of the sites. We're on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. <laughs> at the username at noscriptpodcast. We also have a Gmail, noscriptpodcast at gmail.com because we're ancient. Uh, you can find us on any of those sites and we would love to keep talking about <laughs> Fat Ham with all of you. Absolutely. If you've liked this episode or any of the now we're into season 10 of this show, 
All of those previous nine seasons are online as well. If you've enjoyed No Script, if you're a part of this community, just tell your family and friends about it. They can find us on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and YouTube, as well as other places that podcasts can be found. You can also like us on Facebook, and a link every Monday appears on that Facebook page to the new episode, so it's easy to click and play from there. Hey, we're excited to be back here at the start of another great season, season 10. Here we go. Until next week, I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. And I am Jackson Nikolai. Thank you for listening to No Script, the podcast. <laughs>